Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Long before he was a movie critic, Rene Rodriguez sat at the back of a movie theater and cried watching E.T. Then, he saw the movie 16 more times in that same theater. Rene screens free movies at the Cosford Cinema at the University of Miami now, but for more than 25 years, he was one of America's best-known movie reviewers. Rene went from driving a delivery truck out of high school to getting angry phone calls at home from movie star Sylvester Stallone. Now he uses his Hollywood connections to bring stars to the Cosford to talk film. Oscar winner Rami Malek came to watch the film Queen with a crowd, and he invites prominent South Florida residents to pick a movie and watch it with the audience in a series he calls Watching Movies With. And it all started with going to the movies with his dad as a kid. They'd slip into the theater midway through the picture and stay to watch the beginning like his dad did back in Cuba. What was it like to watch Rocky and Star Wars when you already saw the ending? It's just some of what we'll get into. FYI, we do brush up against some adult topics. Nothing explicit, but just something to keep in mind if you have kids around. Okay, here's Renee. My dad would always take me to movies, uh, like new movies. Like my dad worked six days a week, but he always made time to you know, take me to the movies because he loved going to the movies. Both of my parents were huge movie buffs. What did your dad do? He was a butcher, a uh, carnicero in Hialeah. Oh, um, wow. So we're talking about a job that's, that's a physically taxing yes. job yes. That, that, uh, that requires this particular skill that right. when he got home at the end of the day, he was tired. He was very tired. And my mom worked also, like she, like she worked at a sewing factory. At a clothing, at a, you know, in La Fattoria, yeah. you know, like sewing clothes. My mom also, when, when she came from Cuba, that's what she did in, right. a, in a factory in like what you'd call East Hialeah, uh, almost Brownsville, I guess. Hers was in um, what is now Wynwood. Okay, the, when, the original design. Yeah, yeah, uh, like, like the desi- design yeah, yeah, district. Like area. the design district, right. Yeah. Like, like, like that's where she worked. Um, but she loved movies as well. But my dad was the one who wanted, to, you know, he was always very careful to try to spend at least Sunday, part of Sunday with me because he didn't see me throughout the rest of the week, and he loved movies, and um, he would let me pick the movies. The only problem was Mm. that he was old school. So in Cuba, the movies would play one right after the other. So when they would go to the movies, they didn't check the time. They just went to the theater. Oh, you just showed up and you caught whatever was on the screen at that moment. It's called empatar la película, which means you walk in, doesn't matter what scene it's in, you watch the movie, and then the next show would start up right away. So you would watch the first half of the movie, which you missed, and then you would leave. So you, he literally, you would walk in at the middle of the movie, you'd watch the end, and then you'd watch the, you'd wait 20 minutes until the new one started and watch the beginning. No, no, like they would start right away. Wow. Like, like there was no intermission. So that's how he, so to give you an example, he took me to see Rocky. Fantastic movie. One of the best movies of all time. Yeah. And I walked in at the scene in which Rocky loses the fight. Oh my God, at the crux, at the culmination where he's standing in the middle of the ring yelling, Adrian! That's my first scene of Rocky. And then we stay and the movie's, you know, like the intermissions back then weren't as long and then we watched the rest of the movie. But I watched Rocky knowing what was gonna happen at the end. How did that affect watching the rest of the movie? Well, I was a kid. You know, so it's weird because um, I don't remember it that way. I still think of Rocky as it didn't spoil the, like the movie for me. Star right. Wars, the first you also scene, saw, saw Star Wars like this. My dad did not believe in 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 
getting to the theater on time. He, oh, this he is believed. not. I, I understand so many things about you right now. <laughs> the guy who's always on Cuban time, although you were early today. I'm, but, I'm never on Cuban time. Huh. I'm always early. But no, but my dad, so we walked in. So the first, to me, Star Wars starts with C-3PO and R2-D2 lost in the desert. Oh, wow. That yeah. is not, that is further on in the movie. Yes. Um, and I still loved it. But it's not until I watched the, you know, the, the first 20 minutes that I understood who they were and what they were doing there. Um, and do you, do you ever, out of nostalgia, do you ever, do you ever watch movies like that? Now? No, absolutely not. Are you <laughs> kidding me? That is, a, that is a sin against the art of cinema. <laughs> and as I got older, I told my dad, look, you know what? This has to stop. Oh, you had a problem with this. Well, eventually I did, uh-huh. of course. You know, like <laughs> I realized these movies are getting ruined for me. So I put my foot down and I said, we have to go to the movies when they start. And to his credit, they did. That's um, fantastic. Uh, he did. But um, he took me to see, you know, he would let me pick the movies. And so he took me to see The Shining on opening night. How old were you? I was young. I was probably about 12 or 13. And I remember at the, you know, uh, you know, back then, like, they would tear your ticket at the door. And the old man who was working there says to my dad, you realize this is a movie for adults and it's not really kid appropriate and my dad said my dad spoke no english so he asked me what did he say and i told him oh no he just said that it's a long movie and my dad was like okay (laughs) and then i told the guy yeah thank you Um, you used his lack of understanding english his immigrant status against him you gotta own that that's messed up no no it's not against him it's like who the hell are you usher guy to tell my dad that this is not appropriate you don't even know me you know you don't Um, know my life dressed to kill was another one. I don't know if you've seen Dress to Kill. I have not. Okay, so then this then this won't make sense to you. But watch Dress to Kill. First of all, it's a masterpiece. But you will know within the first five minutes. Imagine me as a eleven or twelve years old watching Dress to Kill, and right. when I and when I say the first five minutes, you will know exactly what I'm talking okay, about. Okay, okay. Um, I can. It was it was very educational. Mm. I'll put it that way. Huh. Huh. It was extremely educational, and it raised some questions, which my dad later had to answer. You've got to give me a little something here. What happens in those first five minutes? So Angie Dickinson is taking a shower. Oh, oh say no more. That's it. That's all we needed. Angie Dickinson is taking a shower, and you're 12 years old? I am 12 years old. Oh, boy. Yeah. I can just I can just picture the conversation. He was the best dad. <laughs> like he was the best dad. Um, eventually, I started getting old enough to go to the cinemas by myself, and right. there was this this twin theater. Um, we lived on near uh, Northwest Seventh Street and Thirty Seventh Avenue, Douglas Road, and like there used to be like a cider there, a GC Murphy, and there was this little twin screen grindhouse cinema, uh, El Triano, mm. which was a neighborhood cinema. Okay, and at midnight they would show pornos. Oh, God. But during the day, they would just show random movies. Like, they would make, like, double bills of just movies that were... And so I would just go to the movie theater. I would look at the movie posters. Mm -hmm. And I would make my choice based on the posters. So I saw things like uh, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, which is a a masterpiece. And it also has, by the way, just trivia, the scariest, most frightening ending of any movie that I've ever seen and when I say frightening I don't mean just like a jump it's like a prolonged jump oh wow it's a jump scare that lasts for like 60 seconds right and I remember that freaking me out um, 
So there were very strange um, double bills, but it taught me good movies, and it also taught me uh, an appreciation for exploitation movies. So it was, it was. I didn't know this at the time, of course, but um, you know, it was a great learning, and I was just going by the theater programming. This is before, you know, this is before I started reading Pauline Kael, like. I was just a kid, just watching movies, but I, I got exposed to so many different kinds of movies. I, I always wondered that because you're a fan of like horror movies, and mm-hmm. I I have to be I can't watch like uh, I'm squeamish for stuff that's that's gory. I don't I don't love gore in movies, but do you feel like like horror movies is that also art? Mm-hmm. Of course, they're art, and I'll tell you a story. Dawn of the Dead played at that Trianon. Oh, and Dawn of the Dead was released unrated. Rodriguez, right? Uh, no, George uh, George A. Romero. George no, no, no. Romero. You're thinking of the remake. This is the original one. Uh, okay, George had, Romero. Uh, 1979. And um, that movie was released unrated because it would have gotten an X for the graphic violence. Wow. But no one under 18, it says in the poster, no one under 18 will be admitted to this theater. At the Trianon, they didn't care. <laughs> they, <laughs> they sold just, tickets to anything. They just like, shuttled they you just, in. They just, it was $2.50 for two movies. And my friend and I went to see Dawn of the Dead, and we get to the tenement scene where the zombie, it's the first time you see a zombie in action. And the zombie bites the shoulder of his wife, who doesn't realize he's a zombie. And it's all done on camera, and then he takes a big chomp out of her forearm. And my friend and I got up, and we literally ran out of the theater. Wow. Because we couldn't handle that. Wow. And then... It's it's amazing to me, like some of the movies you've described is a range of emotion. Rocky, Star Wars, you know, uh, Angie Dickinson. Uh, these, these, all these kind of range of emotions that you're learning through theater and, and even, and horror. Obviously, mm. like the things that, that hit you in a visceral place. Mm. And I think about, uh, do you remember the movie that for you was the first one that made you cry? Do you remember going to the movie and just crying in a theater when you were a kid? The the first one that comes to mind is this is probably not the first time that I cried at a movie, um, but the one that I remember because I cried a lot at it was E.T. Oh, of course. And at that point, like I wasn't a kid anymore; like I was fifteen, and I was working at a movie theater. Well, let's. So you were fifteen. So at fifteen, everybody's tough. Nothing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but E.T. was like, and so I I worked at a movie theater that was showing E.T. What movie theater was that? It's the Plick Gables. It doesn't exist anymore. It was on uh, Coral Way, and they played E.T. there. So I saw it there for the first time, and it just, I mean, it was overwhelming with that movie. I mean, I couldn't understand it. So I went back, again, after work. I could go see it for free. And so I went back, and I watched it a second time. And what I noticed the second time was the audience. Every showing of that movie was packed, always every showing. That's interesting that you went, and then you were watching everybody else. On second viewing, uh-huh. because I right. knew what was coming, but then I also started noticing that the audience responded the exact same way that I did. They laughed when I laughed. Um, they cheered when I cheered. They cried when I cried. And it was fascinating to me because I realized this movie knows how to play the audience like a piano in a good way. Right. And so I started going back and back and back and back just to experience the audience watching the movie. How and many times did you watch that movie? I watched E.T. 16 times. 16 times? At the movie theater. Again, I worked there, so I didn't have to pay. But, but that's amazing. Like, there was something, 
there was something beyond the movie there. Right. Right. Like something happened in that in that theater in that shared communal space. Something happened inside your brain mm-hmm. that that day wired you to ask a different kind of question about what a movie can do. That's right. And, you know, I I became fascinated with how it did it, right? Like, I had seen other movies that, you know, are very crowd, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. But E.T. was different because it was such a simple story. And m- I realized that the way that I had responded to it, everyone was responding to it, whether they were grown-ups, whether they were little kids. Um, and I became fascinated by it. I became fascinated by the camera movements. Like, I started noticing that all the camera shots in E.T. are from a child's level. Hmm. Like, there are no shots from an adult's level. Um, I started noticing the way that he would set up humor. Um, the Like, when E.T. gets drunk at home and there's a telepathic connection with Elliot at school, you know, I just... Like, that movie, to me, was in a way my film school because I, I looked at every detail, I, the, the John Williams score, um, which is phenomenal. It's still my favorite John Williams score. Um, everything, the acting choices, um, everything about that film. So that became almost like my film school at 15. I just didn't realize it at the time. And there's something that's really interesting to me and that's that there are people that have an experience with a movie and not, you know, not all of them shape a person the way that that one that ET might have for you but it's not often that you get to share with the director the effect that you had you had a chance to talk with Spielberg right and and when you were interviewing him but tell me about that time and and telling him what ET did for you yeah so this was the first time that I interviewed Spielberg it was for Saving Private Ryan and this is back when the Herald could fly uh, journalist places so right. you were you were the movie critic at the Miami Herald I was 25 like, years I was the movie critic there and um, the interview was in Atlanta and Saving Private Ryan was an extremely personal movie for, for Spielberg with his father, and um, and it's a masterpiece, of course. And so I had never met him before, but, you know, you're there to do an interview. And Spielberg doesn't do 10-minute interviews. He does 30-minute interviews. Interesting. Yeah, because he likes to get into it. And so we talked about Saving Private Ryan. We talked about, um, you know, Stanley Kubrick was shooting Eyes Wide Shut uh, back then. And he, had to, he was taking like two years, and Spielberg explained to me, how Kubrick could get get away with that. But I always save the last questions for myself hmm. um, in all these interviews that I did, all of them. And with Spielberg, I said, my last question, Stephen, this isn't really a question, but I told him the profound effect that E.T. had on my life, not just as a movie fan, but that it paved the way. I see that movie as paving the way for me to develop an interest in, in movie criticism. Um, I remember Bill Cosford's four-star review of it. I remember Pauline Kael's rave of E.T. Bill and, Cosford, who had been the Miami Herald's uh, film critic for a long time, who later became your mentor. Correct, exactly. Um, and um, I just told him, I said, you know, that movie literally changed my life. And he was so touched, like, like, because that was a very personal movie for him. Um, and you have to remember that that movie was shot, it was a very low-budget movie, um, and it was not expected to do what it did. Um, Which has become one of the great, greatest and highest-grossing movies of all time. Of all time, yeah. yeah. And um, and so he was so moved by what I said that he did, he couldn't say anything. So I made Steven Spielberg shut up. Wow. That's a killer. <laughs> Still to come, 
we continue our conversation with Rene Rodriguez, the manager of the Bill Cosford Cinema at the University of Miami. Next, he tells us how he went from being a truck driver to the Miami Herald's movie critic. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm your host, Carlos Frias. We're back with Rene Rodriguez. He's the manager of the Cosford Cinema at the University of Miami. And he reviewed movies for the Herald for more than 25 years. But before all that, he was a truck driver. What happened with college is that, you know, I had, I had been a really, really good student. And I wanted to take a year, you know, off just between, and I just wanted to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got a job as a dispatcher. I was supposed to be the dispatcher at this freight forwarding company. And my very first day on the job, they're like, hey, we need you to make this delivery in a van. And I did it. And they're like, okay, he's going to be one of our delivery drivers now. Um, so I would drive this huge truck. It's, it's, it, was like a, it wasn't an 18 wheeler, but think about like the trucks that uh, Rooms to Go uses when they're delivering furniture, like, like that kind of truck. Okay, like those big box trucks almost. Yes, yeah, it was a big box truck, and it's me. Like I had to learn how to drive that thing. I didn't have a chauffeur's license or anything. No CDL license, right? Nothing, and they're just like, just, just figure it out. Just don't crash. Um, <laughs> and so, that's great life advice. Just don't crash. That's how that's how we rolled. That's how Generation X rolled, man. Yeah, man. Like, like that's how we rolled. And um, every day there would come a, a truck would come with delivery auto parts. We would unload the, the auto parts. We would distribute them into three routes: Miami Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach. And mine was the Palm Beach route. Palm Beach route. Yes. So you were driving all the way seventy miles and such. Yes, I. My last delivery was where I ninety five used to end, which was PGA Boulevard. Right. So how did you go from a kid driving a box truck, graduating from Gables High, to writing about movies? Like, how did you get into the Herald? Take me about through that a little bit. Well, even as I was driving a truck, I was writing movie reviews, and I would submit them to the Herald. Just random. You'd go to a movie? Yes. Yes. That is hilarious. You were like 19 years old, 18, 19 years old. Well, also, I forgot to say that... uh, I started writing letters to the, so the art section used to have, the Sunday art section used to have a letters page, which was just letters about arts from the readers. And um, I got really pissed at Cosford when he gave Rumblefish two stars. I mean, because I love that movie. You did love that movie. And so I, I said- You continue it, to- Yeah, that's- To love that movie. Like, that's one of my favorite movies, and I was really angry with him. And uh, I wrote a letter, and they published it. Wow. And that did what to you? I started writing more letters. Oh, my God. That is, that's like the Andy Dufresne in Shawshank. He's like, you got everything you want. What are you going to do now? Yes. Now write two letters a week. And they published, They kept publishing them. What did it, Okay, because I think for me, when I, was write, when I started writing, I always remember the first time that I was published. Mm-hmm. What did getting that letter published do to you? What part of your brain did it turn on to say... I enjoy seeing my name in print. No, it, like, no? It, was, it wasn't even that. It was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe that you know, Miami Herald thought my letter was worthy of publishing. I mean, I, I was just a, a teenager. You know, like, I was nobody. But I was really mad at that review because <laughs> I would get very you know, uh, passionate about certain movies, and Rumblefish is one of them. And um, I thought the review just was very unfair and dismissed them. Um, so then I started writing letters to other publications mm-hmm. um, that none, like none of them existed. You started anymore. giving your unsolicited opinions, but they would print uh, them movies. But uh, they uh, would print them to newspapers all over the country. No, 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 no. Like only Miami publications. Like there was this magazine. I can't remember the name of it, but the critic there loved Rumblefish. Okay, give me, give me, 
10 seconds, what is Rumblefish about? Rumblefish is an adaptation of the Essie Hinton novel that she wrote right after The Outsiders. Oh, okay. Uh, so Francis Ford Coppola was shooting The Outsiders in Tulsa with Essie Hinton on the set. And The Outsiders is very, it's like Gone with the Wind for 13-year-old girls. It's very lush and romantic and beautiful. And Essie Hinton, uh, when she wrote The Outsiders, was... Uh, a 16, uh, a 16 year old girl as well, as right. well. And so on the set of The Outsiders, she gave him a copy of Rumblefish. Mm. And Rumblefish is the complete opposite. And so Coppola decided right there on the spot that he was going to shoot Rumblefish as an alternative to The Outsiders. So he went black and white... German expressionism. It's a very stark movie. It's rated R. It's a very hard R movie. Um, he used a lot of the same cast members, Matt Dillon, Diane Lane. Uh, he used the same cinematographer. Like he, he basically just did it. He never left Tulsa. You love that movie enough that it that it got you mad at Bill Cosford. Uh, tell me about what was it like when you met him the first time? How did that happen that you, you left this world and you start to enter this world of becoming the movie consumer to being the guy who gets to have an opinion about it. So my first interview at the Miami Herald um, was for uh, customer service advertising. Um, uh, customer service and advertising. I would basically just answer people's calls who were mad about their classified ad bills. Right. But in my very that sounds first, like a fun job. It, you know, paid the bills. It paid the bills. Right. And it also paid four dollars and sixty cents an hour. Huge um, money. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you didn't have to drive to Palm Beach every day. No, it definitely beat that. But. In my very first interview at the Herald, I'll never forget this, um, someone from Knight Ritter asked me, you know, at the Herald, there are so many different career avenues and paths that you can take, you know, advertising, accounting, you know, what is the path that you see yourself taking? And I said, I want to be a movie critic. Wow. So that's, from the start, that was my path. And so I worked my way through advertising. It turned out that I was really good at it. Like I was... I, First, it was classified, and we would get paid by commission. Okay. So I was making serious money, and I was surrounded by like economics majors, and I was just Rene, just going, "Hey, what's Rene up?" Rene from Kendall. <laughs> Rene, Rene from Flagland. Rene from well, at this point, it was Rene from uh, uh, Westchester, I think. Westchester. Um, and then I got promoted to real uh, retail advertising. Uh, so I had to w put on like a jacket and tie and go out and cold call people to try to convince them to buy full page ads at the Herald, which cost like $10,000, $12,000. So I worked my way up the newsroom. Yep. I was city desk clerk and um, eventually I moved over to features and this is what happened. Juan Carlos Cotto, who was, was a showrunner and writer for shows like 24. Yes, but, but back then he was an arts writer for the Herald mm -hmm. and he was Bill Cosford's backup. Oh, okay. And Juan Carlos Cotto calls me in the office you know, like he just called me from his desk. And he's like, dude, I am resigning today because his brother, who's a filmmaker, just sold a spec script for a movie that never got made. It was called The Ticking Man. It was going to star Bruce Willis. And he sold the script for a million dollars. Oh, my God. And JC told me, I'm moving out there with him. I'm giving you the heads up because I think you need to apply for this job. So I applied. I went over to the features department and I said, look, I'm really, really interested in this. And so there was one test to pass, which was, well, Bill needs to meet you. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, really quick. The first time I met Bill was when I was working at the movie theater. Oh. And he came in for on a Monday night to watch a movie called Finders Keepers, directed okay. by Richard Lester. And I recognized him immediately. And uh, he came up to the concession stand. He's like, small popcorn and a Coke. 
And as I'm preparing his thing, I'm like, you're Bill Cosford, aren't you? And he looked a little surprised. He's like, how do you know? And I'm like, because of your picture in the paper. And uh, he smiled. I think he was just taken aback because I was like this little punk kid. And he's like, oh, that's a terrible photo. And then I didn't, <laughs> I didn't say that. I played it really cool. And I gave him the popcorn and the Coke. And I said, on the house. Oh, look at that. That is such a... Now I can see why you're selling advertising later. <laughs> Baller move. Exactly. But then, you know... Planting so, the seed. <laughs> well, I, I, so he took me out to lunch at uh, Joe Stone Crabs. And this is the kind of boss Bill Cosford was. Wow. Like, he that just, is not a small uh, no. gesture. And he just walks up and the maitre d' is like, Bill, welcome. Take you to our table. I ordered steak because I don't like stone crabs. And Wait, Bill, wait, wait, wait. You went to the iconic Joe's Stone Crab, there it is in the name, and you ordered steak. Yes, and Bill Cosford said, what are you doing? <laughs> I like him already. I never met him. I like him already. And he was, and I was like, I don't like stone crabs. And he just gave me this withering look, and I said, okay, I think I've blown this unofficial interview. He gets up from the table. I'm just kidding. But then we just started talking about movies. Like, uh, Bill just wanted to have a conversation with me about movies and we were just talking about movies and I told him what a formative influence he had been on me um, but I knew that this was kind of like an interview and it came down to one question in the in the course of conversation I knew what he was doing in the course of conversation he's like so what's your favorite Woody Allen movie I have you seen Woody Allen movies you've seen enough of them which is your favorite, and it better be the right opinion. That's exactly right. It was a very loaded question, and I didn't think about it because this was, at the time, my favorite Woody Allen movie, and I said, Manhattan. And the look on his face, he didn't say anything, but by the look on his face, I knew that I had passed. Oh, nice. There was something there that you had the right answer. I, I, yeah, whatever it was, and that's it. And then, like, we moved on from the conversation, but I knew that I had passed right there, just from the expression on his face, even though I ordered steak. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, Did yeah, and after that, um, they started letting me review, you know, the movies that either didn't get screened for critics or were, like, I reviewed a lot of horror movies. My first review was a movie called Free Jack, starring Anthony Hopkins, Mick Jagger, and Emilio Estevez. That seems like an, a motley cast. You would think that that movie is remembered. No, that cast seems <laughs> that seems like an odd grouping of people. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> there's a reason why that movie is not remembered. Yeah, right. um, so most of my reviews were one-star reviews. Do you remember seeing it in the paper for the first time? Oh, of course. What was that like? Well, it was my dad. He would clip out every single story that I wrote. Not just movie reviews, but every single story that I wrote. Because I also did general arts. So I like I got to interview Stephen King. I got to interview Henry Rollins. Um, my dad would keep a scrapbook. Everything that I wrote. And I still have them. Oh, that's beautiful. You yeah. know what's funny is I also have a scrapbook. My mom had a scrapbook of the very first story I ever wrote at the college paper. And hundreds for years. Since she, she got a newspaper subscription just to the Sun Sentinel, which like... She couldn't read. I mean, they, they really didn't read much English. Right. But they got it just so that they could have it right. when a story came. Yeah, yeah, no, like, same thing with my parents. Like, like, like they didn't read a word of English. So Bill, Bill Cosford then gives you this shot, and you start writing about movies. And how was he a mentor to you? Like, why was he, why did he become such an important person for you? Well, I mean, he knew that I really 
liked his writing and he he sensed that I knew uh, had an affinity for movies. So he was to, he taught a, a graduate film level uh, course at the University of Miami, and he let me audit it. Oh, so you this was that was your film school was watching film, writing film, and then hearing him lecture about film. Lecture about and we would and he would show a movie in class, but like he would show it like on a, on on a TV set. Um, I also turned them on to laser discs. Oh, Again, the letterboxing, uh-huh. like the aspect ratio, he was fascinated by that. Um, I turned them on to laser discs, and you know he just became a mentor, but he also enjoyed my company. So we would do lunches periodically, not nearly enough as 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 I wished we had. Um, and my favorite time of year was when he would go on vacation. So he would go on vacation for two weeks in the summer, in the middle of summer movie season. And two weeks in the winter, in the middle of Christmas uh, movie season. So whenever he would go on vacation, I got to review the movies. So I got to review In the Line of Fire. I got to review The Firm with Tom Cruise. I remember that. Um, so that was that was my favorite time of year when when Bill was gone. Because you got to get the big summer blockbuster. Yes, but Bill Bill died um, very suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was sick for a very short time, and and he died suddenly in a matter of three days. That must have really wrecked you. We had it, we had made plans. He had just come. Like he was working on a Jonathan Demi interview for the movie Philadelphia, and the last time I spoke to him was by instant message. And um, he said, as soon as I finish his Jonathan Demi piece, which was running that Sunday, mm-hmm. we're we're doing lunch. And I said, great. And the next thing I knew, two days later. Um, he had died. I mean, it was that quick. Um, it was a matter of he came back from skiing with a really bad cold bug, like, and he was diabetic. Um, and apparently, he, like, he lived alone. He was engaged to be married. Finally, he had been a life a lifelong bachelor, wow. and he was engaged to be married. And um, it was a combination of pneumonia and the fact that he was a diabetic. And he passed out at his house, and um, and there was no one there to. There was no one there, and so um, by the time George Capewell, who used to teach at UM, who lived right down the street, he went to knock on his door because he wasn't responding to the Herald's um, calls, and he found them unconscious in bed. He was still alive, and they rushed him to the hospital. His fiancee got there, and he just he passed away like in an hour, um, and it was so sudden and tragic because he was a healthy man. You know, there was absolutely nothing to suggest that this could happen. So it was just like a huge, gigantic blow, not just to the Herald, but to, to Miami as a, as a community. Was Bill Cosford was a champion of the arts. Um, and it was just a gigantic, enormous blow. Like, it was something that you couldn't comprehend. Had you had you ever lost anyone that uh, close to you, that you had been close to like that? No, no. It was the first funeral that I attended where my emotions were uncontrollable and it wasn't a funeral it was a memorial service because he was so well known that it was held at the Biltmore um, although the, the Cor- huge Coral Gables Hotel yeah yeah the huge Coral Gables Hotel and I remember Dave Barry speaking because he and Dave Barry were dear friends um, and yeah it was no this this was my f- the first time dealing with something along this these lines and it happened to be the person who had inspired me to follow my career and had become my mentor at the same time and my friend. So it was just like a, like a triple whammy of, of emotions that, that, that were happening there. 
How long did it take to come back from that to then when you're sitting down to go to a movie and trying to review and you're thinking about your friend and you're thinking about your life and you're thinking about your career and potentially replacing him, which is you eventually did? It happened immediately because what happened is he passed away in January. The Miami Film Festival was coming in February. And Steve Sonsky, I was 26, I think. Um, I was very green. Yeah. And Steve Sonsky, who was the arts editor at the time, um, he took me into his office and he said, look, we are going to conduct a search, a nationwide search for Cosford's replacement. But we're not going to be able to do it right away because everyone is still reeling from the news and we need you to handle the beat until we find like his replacement. Mm -hmm. And I was like, of course, you know, like I wasn't ready. I never applied for the job. Um, so it was the Miami Film Festival. Um, I remember the opening night movie that year was Belle Epoque by Fernando Treva. And I gave it four stars. And Cosford taught me to be very stingy with stars, hmm. right? But I gave it four stars. And I remember Steve Sansky telling me, hmm, four stars, we shall see. Interesting. But he let me have it. He checked your work. Oh, no, yeah, no, no. Like, he was especially movies. Like, he wanted to make sure that I was... And then the movie won the Oscar the next month. Ah, you were vindicated. <laughs> <laughs> but that was also the year of Natural Born Killers. It was the year of Ed Wood. It was the year of Pulp Fiction, uh, John Waters' Serial Mom. It was all these movies that were right in my wheelhouse. Oh, um, my God, that was, your, that was your resume. That year was your resume. Correct. And all the while, they were flying in candidates for the job, and I would have coffee with them, and then I would tell Steve, like, like what I thought and these were big names in film criticism like I'm not going to mention them but they were like big heavyweight um, one of them went on to win a to, like to win a Pulitzer for film criticism wow um, but none of them ever accepted they there was something about I don't know because I wasn't privy to those sure. conversations so what happened is uh, in December of that year I get a call at 7 o'clock in the morning from Steve and he says look if we don't fill this position we're going to lose it I don't think you're ready. I think you're still very green, but I think that you can also grow into this position and you have shown great growth this year and we're gonna announce tomorrow that you're gonna be replacing Bill officially. And I learned that like, at seven o'clock in the morning. That came out of nowhere, like wow. nowhere. I, I, I mean, I, w I wasn't even thinking along those lines. And so that's what happened. Still to come, we continue our conversation with Renee Rodriguez film critic and manager of the Bill Cosford Cinema at the University of Miami. He shares some stories about his run-ins with celebrities, like getting angry phone calls from Sylvester Stallone. Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm your host, Carlos Frias. We're back with Rene Rodriguez. He's the manager of the Cosford Cinema at the University of Miami and a longtime film critic. We heard how his dad influenced his career, taking him to movies as a kid, even though they always showed up late, and how he went from truck driver to movie critic. But it wasn't long before he started seeing his own name in lights on billboards in Manhattan. There was one in particular. It was a Spanish movie called Flowers, and I had loved it. I was the first one to review that movie. And... I'm walking around New York one day, and there was this theater, which is still there, it's called the Paris Theater. It's a single screen, beautiful, giant movie palace. And they had, it wasn't, it was on the giant marquee, it said flowers, you know, with, and then with a graphic, and they blurbed me. 
on the marquee of the Paris theater. Now, the reason why they blurred me is because I was the only one who had reviewed it. So I don't have any, you know, like it wasn't like, oh, they chose me. Nobody knows that. But nope. it didn't matter. I mean, they do now. But. Yes, yes. And uh, <laughs> so I couldn't believe it. Uh, like that was, you know, I had been blurred before a lot. Do you remember what it said? Do you remember what, in general what the blurb was? It, it, it was just like one of those, like a masterpiece. <laughs> it, like, it didn't really say anything. But they included my name. Which is really interesting because a lot of times when I would get blurbed, they would not include my name. Hmm. Do you know why? Because you had a Hispanic last name. That's right. Wow. That's right. Yeah. I think you and I are we're on the same page. I, yeah. I found tricky. that fascinating. But I found you that knew, fascinating. You knew that. Well, I, I realized it as, as I went along. That changed as my career you know, developed. Like, that changed. Um, um, for People versus Larry Flint, which was a very controversial movie uh, that came out in 97, I want to say. Uh, which was about, um, uh, it was Woody Harrelson, and um, he played Larry Flint Jr. Larry Flint Jr., who, who was the founder of Hustler Magazine. Of Hustler Magazine, yeah. and, and Courtney Love played his, his partner, his, 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 his love interest. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I, like, I think she became love. his wife. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. no, no, it was a, yeah. it was, it was a real genuine love story. Um, it, that movie just blew my mind. It was one of my favorite movies of all time. And... There was a lot of controversy around that movie because of the subject matter, and it was about freedom of the press, you know. Um, and so the studio took out a giant full-page ad in the New York Times that blurbed big-time critics, like the New York Times, Time Magazine, but there were meaty blurbs. They weren't just like brilliant. It was like a paragraph, right? And they included me in it. Rene Rodriguez, the Miami Herald. And the only reason I found out about it is because uh, Dave Lawrence, who used to be the publisher, sent it to me in, in an inner office mail. What, what, we used to, what we used to call uh, Dave's Raves. Dave's Raves, yes. But he sent me the ad, and I was like, wow. And what's funny is that the next week, they ran the same ad with different critics, but those were like lower publications. Oh, the lower tiers. Yeah, so that's when I knew that, okay, the studios like me because they included me with the, with the big guns. They could have easily saved me for the second week. But like the thing about doing that job is that it's not just uh, you're out here on your own. It's like you'd get a phone call from Sylvester Stallone who didn't like your review of a movie. Yes. So Sylvester Stallone moved to Miami uh, uh, very famously. I forget what year it was. He had a house near uh, Alice Wainwright Park in Correct. The, near the bay there. Correct. Yeah. And it was the year that he made uh, Judge Dredd and he made Daylight. Now, we had given him a king's welcome in the Miami Herald. Uh, Lydia Martin wrote this fantastic front-page profile. It was called Citizen Sly. Like, I remember the headline. It was a beautiful portrait of him. And, you know, it was it was a big deal that Sylvester Stallone was moving to Miami full-time. Um, but then these two movies come out, and... And they're bombs. Well, it's not that they're bombs. It's that they were terrible. They were, they were just <laughs> terrible movies. <laughs> And I remember there was a line in my Judge Dredd review where I said something along the lines of, Stallone's pal Bob Dole probably would not appreciate the violence in this movie because Bob Dole was on a campaign to you know tone down violence in movies. And then in Daylight, I really went to town on it because that movie's just terrible. And so I get a call from his assistant, and he's like, hey... Sly is really mad at you. And I'm like, why? And he's like, because... like." You're, you're treating all his movies like they were garbage, and uh, he wants to meet with you. That's so, that is so, uh, he wants to intimidate you, but that's so random. Well, I was just like, 
sure, you know, like, let's go, you know. So I went to his house. Um, there was an appointment set. Um, and I go into his house. Wait, wait. His house is not my house in Flagami. What is it like when you get there? Well, I had been there before. Gates? I snuck into, um, when they opened up the Planet Hollywood uh, in Coconut Grove, he had a party at his house because he was one of the in- investing partners of Planet Hollywood. Yeah, and I believe that there was a like a statue of him frozen in ice from one of his movies, Demolition Man, which is one of my favorite action that, that, movies. That one's pretty good. That, that, one like, that one's pretty good. Okay, so you get to his house. But I snuck. But but I snuck in at the party just just, just really house. quickly. Yeah, I had to snuck in, and the thing is, I was supposed to have a publicist at my side at all times, and the first thing I did was I ditched the publicist. <laughs> And so you have to realize this is a house party where everyone is famous. So, for example, I bummed a cigarette off the Bee Gees. <laughs> and so I smoked a cigarette with the Bee Gees. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme cut, me, cut in front of me at the bar. <laughs> because <laughs> he, he looked he, at me. He looked at me. He's like, I was a nobody. So he just... Um, oh, like this guy is not famous enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, everybody protest. there is famous. Cindy Crawford, um, Bruce Willis... And uh, uh, Demi Moore showed up with their new baby in a carriage, and they're just normal people. Everybody was just ooing and aahing over their baby, and they're like, oh, aren't they cute? And it was just a very out-of-body experience. But there are celebrities, and then there are celebrities. And at the end of the night, Madonna, who lived next door, came over. She just crossed the backyard to come over. And everybody at that party all of a sudden became starstruck. Wow, how interesting. Yes. And so uh, Sly, Madonna, and the Estefans posed for a group picture, and I <laughs> and I, I just got into the corner of it. Uh, I just got into the, into the corner of, of, of the photo uh, next to Emilio Estefan, and, you know, they took the photo, uh, and I asked the photographer, where, where is this going to appear? They said, People Magazine. I was like, awesome. And the photo did appear in People Magazine, but they crossed me out. <laughs> so <laughs> I used they I cut used you to, out of the photo. I used to use my elbow because I it's my elbow because I remember the shirt that I was wearing. But they caught me out because they were probably like, "Who's this guy? Who's this bum?" <laughs> I know that's Madonna. <laughs> I know that's Sylvester Stallone. That's Demi Moore. And uh, right, but man, did. like I wish I had a copy of that photo. You have um, the most famous elbow in that photo. But anyways, so then, so so Stallone invited me to his house. Back to his house. Yes, back to his house. No, no, like, he didn't know that I was there. Like, there was not supposed to be any You were snooping there. at his house before. Yes, I got caught. Um, uh, I went to his office. Uh, some some parts were roped off. But, but you were no, like, I'm going to the bathroom. But nobody was paying attention. And so like, oh, yeah, can you tell me where the restroom is? And then I was going to the restroom, and I see his office, and it was roped off. And so I went inside, and uh, he had shelves with copies of his movies like wrapped like to give away he had the gun that he used in rambo that huge gun um you're probably the one like one of the sequels like at the base of his desk and i and i went went over to his desk it was like this huge it was like the godfather's desk right um and i went over to his desk just to see like what he had going on there and all of a sudden i hear a voice could i help you oh no (laughs) and i look and it's frank stallone yeah right his brother his brother he's like can i help you and i'm like Oh, I was just looking for the bathroom. <laughs> and he's like, well, it's not in here. <laughs> and I was like, oh, sorry, my bad. Um, well, it's not in here is yeah. the, is a great response to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, so yeah, so I go to Stallone's house. Again, this is for our formal off-the-record sit-down. Yep. And we talked for an hour. He was an enchanting, 
charming guy. He was so funny. He's so intelligent. Um, he's not at all what, you know, and it wasn't a confrontation. Right, thing. he's not Rocky. Right, no, no, no. He's the guy he, that remember, writes he Rocky. Wrote Rocky, right. exactly. Um, but then at one point, you know, it was a very friendly, cordial conversation. I remember I was looking around and every single inch of his house was decorated like with Johnny Versace and stuff like that. I, uh, he asked me, can I get you anything to drink? I'm like, water's fine. And his maid comes with this goblet that had like jewels encrusted on it. And I was so afraid of dropping it that I just set it on the table and I didn't drink water because that glass looked really expensive, you know. And so we're having a nice conversation. And then um, he goes, you know, when I'm in a movie, everyone assumes that I wrote it and directed it. I'm just an actor. Like, I didn't write and direct these movies. I'm just an actor. I show up to act. And I told him, well, but Sly, but these movies get made because of you. Judge Dredd got made because of you. Daylight got made because you were in it. Um, he's like, yeah, but, you know, when, when critics reviews these movies, they always come after me. Like, it's not my fault. You know, like, I'm only an actor. You know, that was his argument. But it was a very cordial conversation. Um, but and, then but then there was the time where it kept sliding, right? And then it, he at one point he decided to leave Miami. Yes. So he, he made this movie called Copland, which he made for very low money. It, you know, it was a... A, a way for him to sh- show his acting chops. And, and it was actually very good. And it was a fantastic movie. And so I interviewed him for that. Um, and he sent me a note, a letter, which I have hanging on my refrigerator. It was on his letterhead. And it said, Renee. Do the voice. I'll do my best, but, but you do that better. Your words touched my heart. Love, Sly. <laughs> and you can't help but read that without hearing his voice, right? Of course. Your, your words touch my heart. Right, right. But he also called you there was some guy in traffic, and he's right. like... So, so then later, um, I, I can't remember the circumstance of the phone call, but he was leaving Miami. He had, he, had, he had put his house on the market for Miami. And I was asking him like why he was leaving. He's like, well, Renee, you know, like people take advantage of me there. Do like, the voice. The air, the air conditioning guy comes over because my air conditioning isn't broken. Is broken, and he says it's going to cost you twenty five thousand dollars to fix it. How does an air conditioner cost twenty five thousand dollars to fix? <laughs> you know, like I'm not asking him. You know, for you know, people are just taking advantage of me, and plus I don't feel welcome there anymore. <laughs> and I said, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Well, the other day, like I was in my limo driving around Coconut Grove." And uh, I had lowered the window to do something, and some kids recognized me. And, like, we were walking by, and they're like, hey, Sly. And I leaned out the window to wave (laughs) hi to them. (laughs) And they responded by saying, F you, and (laughs) and flashing me their middle fingers. (laughs) And he was like, what did I ever do to deserve this? I haven't done anything. So, yeah, I'm leaving Miami. He said, uh, it hurt my feelings. It hurt my feelings. Like, that hurt my feelings. Like, what did I ever do to those kids? Um, it's funny, <laughs> but I also get it. I I both, I, I have to laugh at it, but I feel for him. Like, I celebrities, they're I just like too. us. Exactly. Yeah. Like, they're they're just like us. And, yeah, like, like, like he moved away. Um, uh, but, yeah, that's, that's my uh, Stallone. And this is the world that Bill Cosford helps lead you into. And now you manage the theater at the University of Miami that bears his name. Correct. And at that theater, you do some of the things that he did with you. He 
shows movies to young people. He introduces them to whole genres of films that they don't know are genres, and many of the movies are free. We try to make them free as often as possible. We, like, we do sneak pre previews. We did The Fablemans. We did White Noise. We did um, Barbarian before, they, before these movies all came out, and it's free. Renee, brother, thank you for your time, man. Carlos, thank you so much, man. It's a lot of fun. That was Renee Rodriguez. He's the manager of the Bill Cosford Cinema at the University of Miami. Before that, Renee was the Miami Herald film critic for more than 25 years. You can find more information about the cinema at cosfordcinema.com or follow our social media at WLRN Sundial. And that's Sundial for Tuesday, January 3rd. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. And our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, from the Everglades to coral reefs, WLRN's environmental reporter Jenny Stiletovich has seen it all. She joins us for a year in review of South Florida's ecosystem. We talk about how pythons love making etiquette, could help conservationists fight the invasive species, and the best spots for bird watching. Okay, I'll tell you, it's the dump. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Thank you.